Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your host, Katie Halper. And I'm the other host, Aaron Metek. This week, we're doing a special interview-only show, but don't worry because it's such a great interview. It's with the wonderful John Kiriakou, and we're also providing you with the Thursday Throwdown, which we like to do every week. That's for our uh, subscribers at usefulidiots.substack.com. What we're doing is we're doing a Thursday Throwdown about uh, Zelensky and Sean Penn. So make sure you subscribe, usefulidiots.substack.com. And here is our interview with John Kiriakou. So excited to have on John Kiriakou. He is a former CIA counterterrorism officer and a former senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. John became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, a law designated to punish spies. He served 23 months in prison as a result of his attempt to oppose the Bush administration's torture program. He also has a new substack called Loud and Clear. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to see both of you. So, John, a lot of what we want to ask you about, let's start with uh, among the new victories that these rebel Republicans won for yeah. holding out their vote for Kevin McCarthy was the creation of a new what's being built as a church committee, a new church committee to investigate the investigators, the intelligence agencies. What do you make of this investigation? Do you think it can avoid being strictly partisan, as some Democrats are alleging it will be? And what would you want to see this committee focus on? Oh, great questions. I, I actually don't think that this committee can be nonpartisan for a couple of reasons. The most obvious being that it it appears that the Democrats aren't going to participate. Uh, we don't really know yet who uh, the members are going to be, but I was talking to somebody who's associated with this new um, subcommittee this morning as a staff member. Uh, he told me to expect Congressman Thomas Massey, the libertarian Republican from uh, from Kentucky. And he also warned me that what Jim Jordan, the, the new subcommittee's chairman, um, has already begun doing is begun he's begun staffing this subcommittee with CIA officers who are going to be on loan from the CIA on detail to then go after the FBI. So, you know, we've got we've got partisan problems in that it's going to be not just a Republican subcommittee, but a very conservative, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, the Freedom Caucus conservative uh, subcommittee, and it probably won't even include any Democrats. And then besides that, Aaron, you know how much the CIA and the FBI have hated each other over the decades, over the generations. Uh, we can go back to the creation of the CIA in 1947. They've hated each other since then. And now you're going to have CIA officers under the guise of congressional oversight going after the FBI. And and listen, I'm the last guy on the planet who is going to be out there defending the FBI. But this may be like professional wrestling in that there's just no good guy. This reminds me of when uh, Hulk Hogan wrestled the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 6. And that was it was a hard time for me because I did not know. I don't I did not want to pick sides. And the same case here. I have to pick a side between the CIA and the FBI. And of course, for me personally, I'd have to pick scrutiny of the CIA because they, I think, are responsible for more misery around the world than the yeah. FBI is. The FBI's uh, yeah. uh, oppression happens at home uh, in the U.S. pretty much, where the CIA, CIA is global. So, farm to table. Farm to table. But, but John, since you mentioned, maybe you want to tell us briefly why 
you have no love for the FBI uh, based on your experience as a whistleblower who blew the whistle on torture at the CIA, who then got prosecuted by the FBI. And just to clarify, no one's gotten in trouble for the torture program, right? No. The only person Nobody. who got in trouble related to the torture program was you who blew the whistle on it. Yeah, I was the only one who went to, to prison. And there was a guy that I worked with in the CIA's counterterrorism center by the name of Glenn Carl. Um, Glenn was was the headquarters officer in charge of the torture program, thinking in the beginning that this was legal and it was legit. And then when he saw exactly what people were doing at these secret sites overseas, he flipped against it at headquarters and was fired from the CIA. He was never prosecuted, but um, but he lost his job. He lost his career because he he went up the chain of command and said, this is unethical and it's it's uh immoral and probably illegal so but yeah i'm the only person that went to prison uh why do i hate the fbi it was peter strock uh who put the cuffs on me and um and took me to jail and charged me with five felonies including three counts of espionage for giving an interview to abc news and a subsequent interview to the new york times and you know the funny thing is that when I blew the whistle on the CIA's torture program in December of 2007, as you might imagine, the CIA filed uh, what's called a crimes report against me with the FBI the very next day. And from December of 2007 until December of 2008, uh, the FBI investigated me. And then in December of 2008, they sent my attorneys what's called a declination letter saying they were declining to prosecute me because their um, investigation had concluded that I had not broken the law. Now, the, the, the issue there is that it is illegal. It's actually a felony. It's on the books. It's never been prosecuted before, but it's actually a felony to classify a crime. So if somebody in government is committing a crime, it's illegal to make that program classified for the purpose of keeping the information away from the American people. And that's what they determined this, this was. So they declined to press charges. Three weeks later, Barack Obama is inaugurated as president, and he names John Brennan, an old nemesis of mine, as the deputy national security advisor for counterterrorism. He tried to make Brennan the CIA director in that first term, and progressives were up in arms because, because Brennan was in up to his neck in the torture program, and everybody knew it. What I did not know was that as soon as Obama was inaugurated, Brennan asked the Justice Department to reopen the case against me secretly. And I didn't know that the FBI then, for the next three years, had tapped my phones. They were intercepting all of my emails. They had um, teams of FBI surveillance officers following my family and me. They followed us to church. They followed us to dinner. They followed us to Target. And then in January of 2012, I was charged with uh, with these five felonies. So, you know, not only has the FBI raided my house, which they did in, in January of, uh, of 2012, but they've raided my house twice. They did it again uh, two and a half, less than two and a half years ago. So I actually have federal, um, I have a federal suit, federal litigation against the FBI right now in the Eastern District of Virginia, 
So that's why I personally hate the FBI. Now, it, it actually even goes back a little bit farther than that. On the night that we captured Abu Zubaydah in Faisalabad, Pakistan, this was late March of 2002, we believed, we all believed, the CIA, the FBI, the White House, we all believed that Abu Zubaydah was the number three in Al-Qaeda. He wasn't. He was a bad guy, but not bad enough to, you know, put in Guantanamo for the rest of his life with no trial. And then when he dies, you just you just cremate his body and throw him in the Caribbean. But the night that we caught Abu Zubaydah, it was a joint team of CIA officers and FBI agents. And I was the, the leader of this group of 36 people. One of the things that we grabbed that night, besides Abu Zubaydah and his bodyguard and dozens and dozens of other people, was Abu Zubaydah's cell phone. So in the chaos and the commotion of capturing him, an FBI agent took the cell phone, threw it in an evidence bag, and sealed it. And as soon as she did that, it started ringing. So I grabbed the bag, and she said, stop. And I said, Jen, it could be, can I swear on this show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my exact words. It could be fucking Bin Laden calling. And she says, it's evidence. I said, evidence of what? The guy's never been charged with a crime. If we can answer the phone, and all the while it's ringing, if we can answer the phone and it's Bin Laden or Zawahiri or some other guy on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, don't you think that's what the White House would want us to do? In the meantime, the circle formed around us. CIA and FBI, all watching to see how this was going to play out. And she said to me, if you open that bag, I will arrest you and I will charge you with obstruction of justice. And then the phone stopped ringing. And we never knew. What would knew- you have done if you, if you had picked it up? Or, or what would you have done? Would you have given it to Zubaida to pick up? Or what would you have done had she, you not been threatened with arrest? If I had been able to answer the phone, I would have tried to engage whoever was on the other line in conversation. My Arabic was absolutely fluent, absolutely excellent. And if you can just get a second or two on the line, NSA is able to grab it. And in many cases, they can geolocate where the other person is. So we speculated afterwards that word had gotten around Al-Qaeda very quickly that we had gotten him. And somebody in a position of authority was calling to see if he was okay. But we'll never know. Was this just a power play? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can explain to you why it was just a power play. Because overseas, the CIA always uh, takes the leadership role. Domestically, the FBI always takes the leadership role. But 9-11 was still an open criminal investigation. And so while this is a CIA operation, the FBI liked to think that they were in charge and they were going to take leadership because eventually they're going to have to use this information in court, which, of course, never, ever happened. Nobody was ever charged with a crime. So, yeah, it was a power play. Just about three weeks later, it's this is kind of a funny story, funny and sad at the same time. Three weeks later, the spokesman for the Taliban embassy in Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, gave a press statement. And I happened to be watching this press statement with a guy who was on loan to the American embassy from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. He was a detective. 
And he was a very close contact of mine. In fact, he just called me day before yesterday. He said, look at this son of a bitch, the balls that this guy has. He just goes on TV like he's taunting us. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, that drives me crazy. You know, this is like the only country left in the world that actually recognizes these guys and allows them to have an embassy. And he said, we should break into that place and steal everything they have. And I said, you know what? We should. That's exactly what we should do. And so I sent a cable to headquarters and I said, listen, I'm going to put a team together and we're going to drive to Peshawar, Pakistan in the middle of the night and we're going to break into the Taliban embassy and we're going to steal literally everything. And they said, go with God. So we went, I actually have pictures of it. We went and we filled, and I mean to the to the roofs, three passenger vans full of documents and computers and equipment. So about a week later, this detective came up to the CIA station and he said, hey, listen, something important. He goes, that was all fun and stuff. And we can tell, you know, our kids stories about it. But something important, there's a file that has phone bills in it. And these phone bills show dozens of calls to the United States going right up until September 10th and stopping. And then they start up again on September 16th, Buffalo, New York, Kansas City, Boston, all over America. So I cabled headquarters and I said, be advised. This is what we found. And they said, okay, turn it over to the FBI. It's their investigation, but make photocopies for our files. So I made copies, gave a copy to the Pakistanis, sent a copy to CIA, gave the originals to the FBI. Two years later, I resigned from the CIA. I happened to be in a shopping mall in suburban Virginia, and I ran into one of the FBI agents that I had worked with in Pakistan. Hadn't seen him in two years. Hey, I said, how's it going? Hey, I said, whatever happened to those phone bills? And he said, oh, you know what? We never did anything with those because we couldn't find a Pashtu linguist to take the time to go over them. And I go, Pashtu linguist? They were in English. That's how I knew what they were. I don't speak Pashtu. They were in English. He's like, oh, sorry. I think we may have fucked this up. And then another year later. But even if they had been in Pashtun, they could find a linguist. I mean, it's a double. Find a linguist. Exactly. What? There's not not like a dying language. Not one Pashtu speaker anywhere in America that you can trust enough to, to translate some telephone bills. You know? So a year later, I I talked to my detective friend and I said, whatever happened to those phone bills? I'm really bothered by this. And he said, oh, man, it's right out of the final scene of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said they boxed it up, they sealed it, and they sent it to Greenbelt, Maryland, and it's sitting on a shelf somewhere in an FBI storage facility. And nobody ever looked at those bills. That's why I hate the FBI. So, John, quickly, because I want to get back to the the issue of this new committee, but is that incompetence or is that a deliberate cover-up? Yeah. You know, at the time, I thought it was incompetence. 
And in the intervening years, I think I've come to believe that it was a cover-up. Because it's not like they didn't know. It's not like nobody told them, right? There's cable traffic out there that people can get now through the Freedom of Information Act. They knew exactly what they were receiving. So I think somebody made a made a decision that they're just not going to touch this. You know, were those FBI numbers that were being called? Were they FBI informants? Were they terrorists? I don't know. And I can only conclude that it was a cover-up. So going back to this new committee that yeah. Republicans have formed to uh, investigate U.S. intelligence agencies, among the people who I have no doubt they're going to scrutinize is the FBI official you mentioned, Peter Strzok, the guy who put the handcuffs on you. Yeah. Because Peter Strzok is also the senior FBI agent who formally launched the Trump-Russia probe. That's and right. we know now what a scam that was. Yep. And there's a lot more, I think, to come out on that that I think – would be the subject of legitimate oversight. But you've already uh, given us reasons to question that this probe, that this committee will be legitimate because it involves CIA staffers who will have their own grudge to pursue against the FBI when it's the CIA itself that should be just as equally the subject of oversight. So 100%. given all that, given all that, going back to my earlier question of, let's say this was a legitimate committee with uh, you know, nothing but good intentions. What kind of oversight would you want to see? What would you want to see this committee look into? Oh, yeah. You know, um, Jim Jordan, the, the subcommittee's chairman, uh, gave a floor statement yesterday, and he said that the committee is going to look at any governmental organization that collects information on Americans. Well, that's pretty much every governmental organization at least in the intelligence and federal law enforcement communities. So I would like to see that be true, but I wouldn't want to see it relegated just to the FBI and just to the FBI agents and leaders who went after uh, Donald Trump. You're 100% right. There was no such thing as Russiagate. It was all made up, right? There was never any evidence. Uh, and Peter Strzok made a, a career out of it. I mean, the guy's got... 200,000 Twitter followers. He's making a ton of, ton of money, you know, appearing on TV and and uh, he gives speeches all over the place. He's a liar and a fraud. He's a liar and a fraud. And he shouldn't be held up as an example of what we want our governmental authorities to be. So I would love it if the subcommittee would go after the FBI and people like Peter Strzok, but at the same time, go after the CIA and NSA. You know, we've known for, for 20 years, and we've been certain for eight years since Ed Snowden came out, that NSA was um, spying on Americans, right? Warrantless wiretapping. Not only is that a violation of federal law, it's a violation of NSA's charter. The charter that created NSA said specifically that NSA could not intercept the communications of U.S. persons. That's any American citizen or anybody in the country on a green card. They can't, and they do it anyway. I'd like to know also what the CIA is doing against Americans, because thanks to Josh Schulte and the Vault 7 uh, revelations, we know that the CIA is capable of taking over um, our cars by hacking into their computer systems, that the CIA is able to turn our smart TVs uh, into listening devices, even when they appear to be turned off, to listen to what we're saying in, in our private communications. The CIA has never answered for any of that. So if Jim Jordan were serious, this wouldn't be an investigation into the just the FBI based on 
the the anonymous uh, testimony of 14 so-called FBI whistleblowers, it would be the entire intelligence and federal law enforcement communities. And by the way, John, uh, going back to the issue that you were imprisoned for blowing the whistle on, which is the CIA's torture program, what happened when the Senate tried to conduct oversight of that yeah. torture program? Yeah. The CIA, under John Brennan, who you mentioned earlier, spied on the Senate and got yes. caught. For the first time in American history, the CIA hacked in to the Senate Intelligence Committee's computer systems to try to see what it was that the, that the Intelligence Committee investigators were collecting on the CIA. You know, Dianne Feinstein, a, a complaint that I've had against uh, Dianne Feinstein, Aaron, for many years is that she was little more than a cheerleader for the CIA, especially when she was the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. What she did was to go onto the floor of the Senate, right, unannounced, as soon as she learned that this had happened, she condemned John Brennan by name, and then she filed a crimes report with the FBI asking the Justice Department to investigate John Brennan and the CIA. In the end, nothing happened. There was no investigation. Uh, the Justice Department elected to just ignore the fact that this had happened. And now John Brennan is on the board of Fordham University, and he's a talking head on MSNBC, trying to convince um, progressives why they should be, you know, neoliberals and support all the things that the CIA supports. It's it's a travesty. January 11th marked the 21-year anniversary of the opening of Gitmo. Can you talk about the significance of this? Yeah. Um, you know, this is a dark stain on American history. Uh, I, I've believed this from the very beginning. I'll tell you the first time I ever heard of Guantanamo in the context of it being a, a prison. In, in April of 2002, we had captured so many Al-Qaeda fighters in Pakistan that we had filled the Rawalpindi jail. This is what we would do. Because Rawalpindi, um, Rawalpindi is a big city that's right next to uh, to Islamabad. And they had a new jail that was pretty much empty. They were still using an old jail. And the Pakistani intelligence service told us, look, you can just put all these people at Rawalpindi. And then we'll figure out what to do with them later. We said, great. So... In just a matter of five weeks or so, we filled the jail and the Pakistanis came to me and said, we got to start getting these guys out. You have to talk to your people. The jail's full. We got to get them out. And they were afraid, frankly, that that the fact that there were so many Al-Qaeda fighters there would make the jail a target for a jailbreak or an attack or something like that. So I cabled CIA headquarters and I said, what do I do? We've got hundreds and hundreds of people that we captured and the Pakistanis want them out. So what should I do? They said, put them on C-12 uh, cargo planes and fly them to Guantanamo. And I wrote back and I said, Guantanamo, Cuba? Why would we send them to Cuba of all places? And the response that I got back made perfect sense to me. They said, we decided to hold them at Guantanamo for two or three weeks until we can figure out whether to charge them in the Eastern District of Virginia, the Federal District of DC, the Southern District of New York, or the Federal District of Boston. Um, and I said, oh, well, that's, that's a great idea. So we loaded, it took four planes and uh, we loaded all these guys on, on planes. And this was tough. You know, it's not like we have hundreds of 
of sets of, of handcuffs sitting around, right? So we used flexi cuffs and you have to put a diaper on them and tie them down. We had one incident where a Saudi um, had uh, broken his flexi cuffs and was caught trying to gnaw through the hydraulic cable in the back of the plane to crash the plane into the ocean. This is how serious these guys were and how afraid many of them were about what was going to happen to them. Well, as it turned out, the Bush administration, and especially Dick Cheney, who was really the one in charge of all this, never intended for any of these people to go on trial. Never. They were already preparing arguments to be heard in federal court for not sending these guys to trial, right? Well, we're going to start using the term enemy combatants, for example. And Guantanamo isn't really the United States. It's a foreign country. It just happens to be an American base. So if they're still in a foreign country, they don't get or constitutional rights. Well, you know, that was open for debate. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court said, you're right, they don't get constitutional rights. And so here we are 21 years later, and where there were almost 800 people in Guantanamo at one time, almost all of whom were innocent, by the way of any crime. And we can get into that if you want. We're down to 35. And these 35 are supposed to be the worst of the worst. In fact, they're not. Three or four, or maybe five of them are. The rest of them are just people who don't have countries to go back to. You can't send somebody who's Yemeni, for example, back to Yemen, right? The country's in the midst of a war and a civil war concurrently. They'll be killed if they go back there. And others... Third countries just don't want to take them because we've already imposed on all of our friends and allies to take other prisoners. You know, we we captured uh, we captured six Uyghurs, for example, uh, who were innocent of any crime, and we couldn't send them to China; they could be killed there. So we sent two to Switzerland, two to Albania, and two to Tahiti. Well, we can't impose on people like that anymore. And so there are people who have been cleared for release at Guantanamo that have been sitting there still for years. One guy's been cleared for seven years and is still being held at Guantanamo. Now, for these other ones, people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, for example, the, the mastermind, really, of the 9-11 attacks. Um, Abu Zubaydah is another. Uh, Abdurrahim Neshidi, the mastermind of the uh, of the embassy attacks in Africa. Ramzi bin Ashib, who ma masterminded the USS coal bombing. If these guys are the bad guys that we say they are, and we have this wealth of information and intelligence, then we need to charge them with a crime. We need to put them on trial and allow them to face their accusers in a court of law. That's the American way. You know, I, I sound like a broken record, Katie, but I, I say all the time, either we're going to be that shining beacon of hope for human rights and civil rights and civil liberties, or we're not. We can't pretend that we are, and then do something opposite. I'll give you another example. When I was stationed in Bahrain, I was on rotation to the State Department in the 1990s. And I was the human rights officer there. And I would have to go into the, the minister of, uh, of the interior's office and say, your highness, you can't pick up a 15-year-old boy for marching in a pro-democracy demonstration, beat him to death, and then call his parents to come and pick up the body. You can't do that. That's a crime against humanity. And I'm going to have to put that in the human rights report. And I'm going to have to inform Congress. 
which then may impact the next arms sale to your country. Okay, but then what happens when the CIA station chief goes in an hour later and says, don't listen to the human rights guy. We want you to open up a secret prison that only we'll know about. And we'll torture people there, or better yet, you torture them there. And you just give us a transcript of whatever it is they say. And we'll take care of the arms sale thing. Don't worry about it. So what are they going to do? They're going to listen to the human rights guy? Or are they going to cooperate with the CIA station chief? And that's why we're in this predicament. So what should be done with these uh, Gitmo inmates who are who can't be returned to their home countries? Um, so the Gitmo inmates that can't be returned to their home countries, I would say one of two things should happen. For the, for the few, the handful, the fewer than a half a dozen who really are the worst of the worst, they need to be put on trial. If they... If they really did commit the crimes that we're accusing them of having done, they have a right to a to a jury of their peers and, and a trial by that jury, whether we like their politics or not. This is the system that we've given ourselves. Now, we tortured a lot of these guys, maybe all of these guys. And so the information that they provided, the incriminating information that they provided under torture, it's inadmissible. And so if we're not able to prosecute them legitimately, they need to be released. Um, and, and we've learned a lesson, a very painful and powerful one. The other ones, you know, I would go so far as to say ought to be released into the United States. Congress, um, a very cowardly Congress in, in um, the 2000 aughts, uh, passed a law which which George W. Bush dutifully signed, and then it was repassed and re-signed by, uh, by Barack Obama. It forbids any prisoner from Guantanamo from entering the United States ever for any reason. There's a situation now where an Iraqi prisoner who has a deteriorating spinal condition, they couldn't operate on him there because they didn't have the equipment. So they flew the equipment from Miami to uh, Guantanamo. And when they were unloading it, they dropped it and they broke it. Right. So they don't have the equipment necessarily necessary for his operation. And they didn't even have a working MRI. They said they got to fly him to Miami for the operation. But lo and behold, we have this law that says, no, you can't fly him to Miami. So he didn't get his operation. And now he's permanently paralyzed because we fucked it up. Right. There's no reason you know, we've got dangerous people in prisons across America. We had the blind sheikh, Omar Abdurrahman, for example. He was so dangerous that we put him in Supermax. What, you think Guantanamo is going to keep us any safer than Supermax is? There's no reason why these guys can't be, if they're guilty, why they can't be imprisoned in the United States. None. It's just cowardice on the part of both Congress and successive White Houses. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Any, any more that you want to share? Any more fuck yous you want to share? No, I will say how much I admire the work that the two of you do. Um, I, I follow both of you everywhere, and it's just so much fun to sit down and have a conversation. The time has flown, yeah. and I just want to thank you again for having me. This was really a lot of fun. 
Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And where can people find you and tell us just briefly about your Substack? Oh, thank you. Yeah, Substack. I I just now migrated over to Substack. You know, I write for Covert Action Magazine and Consortium News and the Sheer Post, and I've got a daily radio show with uh, at Sputnik, and now I'm doing a TV series. Uh, it's a it's a weekly thing called The Whistleblowers with Rebel Media. So I put everything all in one place. It's all on my Substack page. It's called Loud and Clear with John Kiriakou. So uh, and that's at that's at johnkiriakou.substack.com, which we will link to. That is it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, John. And Thank good luck on the, on the pilots. I appreciate it. Oh, I, John Kiriakou is one of my favorite guests. He's got stories for miles and he's lived so many different lives. You know, CIA officer, uh, Hollywood screenwriter, uh, whistleblower. Inmate. Prison inmate, yeah, um, which we didn't even really get into. And, no. and so we could have him on. I'm sure we will have him back yeah, on very soon. If you want to understand what we're referring to with Hollywood uh, screenwriter, uh, make sure you join the Substack at uh, usefulidiots.substack.com. Uh, John Kiriakou spills the tea about not only Alec Baldwin, but also uh, Keith Oberman. And he tells us about how he exchanged some fighting words with both of those guys so definitely for this week you're definitely going to want to join the the substack usefully substack.com all right and we'll see you next week bye everybody hello thank you so much for listening to and watching useful idiots for full episodes and extended interviews please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com you can subscribe on youtube at youtube.com slash useful idiots for clips live streams and full episodes also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast follow us on twitter at useful idiot pod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. <laughs>